Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Nearly a week after oil was first reported off the coast of Orange County, investigators still have not been able to determine exactly how much crude has spilled into the Pacific. U.S. Coast Guard Captain Rebecca Orr. I know there is a lot of interest in a spill volume together with five agencies, federal and state agencies. We have assessed and verified pipeline data and made a determination that the minimum amount of crude oil released from that pipeline is 588 barrels of oil. 588 barrels. That works out to about 25,000 gallons. Or says the worst case scenario is 3,134 barrels, or about 131,000 gallons spilled. Meanwhile, large clusters of tar balls have been found along the San Diego County coastline south of the spill. Officials there are advising people to be more cautious at area beaches, which remain open at this time. It's still unclear if the tar balls are from the oil spill, but the quantity that's been reported makes it likely. Meanwhile, the cause of the pipeline rupture remains under investigation. Coast Guard investigators boarded the container ship Rotterdam Express at the port of Oakland to determine if it was involved in the spill. The Rotterdam Express was the ship anchored closest to the pipeline last week. A spokesperson for Hapig Lloyd, the ship's owner, says it's received word that the vessel is no longer under investigation, although that has not been confirmed by the Coast Guard. Let's turn to the pandemic. As COVID cases decline in California, Los Angeles County health officials are encouraged by another metric. More teenagers are getting vaccinated. KPCC's Jackie Fortier has the details. In the past month, there was a 5% increase in Latino 12 to 15-year-olds receiving the free shots. The percentage was similar for Native American children in the same age group, followed by black children. L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer credited families and an LAUSD mandate that students in extracurricular activities be fully vaccinated by the end of October. And I think for students that are playing sports or engaging in an extracurricular activity that they love, uh, that may also be uh, a motivating factor. We're just glad to see the increase. All LAUSD students 12 and over will have to be vaccinated by mid-December to attend in person school in January. When the vaccine is approved by federal health officials for younger children, a statewide mandate for students to be vaccinated will kick in. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. In related news, in the Bay Area, public health officers say the Delta surge is subsiding. So now it's time to talk about an exit strategy for COVID mask mandates. KQED's Raquel Maria Dillon has more. County public health officers imposed mask orders in early August. They say that's one reason the summer COVID surge was mild in the Bay Area compared to the rest of the state and country. Here's what needs to happen before the masks come off indoors. 
First, the counties must reach the yellow or moderate tier in the CDC's transmission map. Second, COVID hospitalizations must be low and stable. And third, vaccination. Either the county has to vaccinate 80% of its total population or eight weeks have to pass after the FDA approves a COVID vaccine for kids ages 5 to 11. Contra Costa County Health Officer Dr. Chris Farnatano. This final vaccination metric is really important to ensure that enough of the community is vaccinated to give us a fair degree of confidence that removing the mask requirement will not trigger another severe surge of cases and hospitalizations. The mask-free date is at least a couple months in the future, and masks will still be required in schools, on transit, and in hospitals. San Francisco officials made the first move. If rates stay steady starting October 15th, people in places like gyms, college classes, and offices will no longer have to mask up indoors, but someone will have to check that everyone there is vaccinated. For the California Report, I'm Raquel Maria Dillon. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Flom. And you're Maggie Freeling. Hey, Jason. Every day we learn about another person who shouldn't be in prison. 58 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So glad you're home. If you want to be part of this work, listen to Wrongful Conviction. The podcast where we hand the mic to innocent people to hear their stories. How do you send someone innocent to prison? Listen to new episodes of Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling and Jason Flom on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Officials with Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park say that while they still haven't been able to fully assess the damage because the KNP complex fire is still very active, the blaze appears to have seared two groves, including one with 5,000 trees. Last month, firefighters worked to protect the giant forest, which is home to about 2,000 sequoias, including the General Sherman tree, considered the world's largest tree by volume. And while the area appears to have been spared by the blaze, that's not the case for other large groves. Further south, the Windy Fire has burned at least 74 sequoias. Garrett Dickman, a botanist at the National Park Service in Yosemite National Park, who has been assigned to assess the sequoia damage from the Windy Fire, tells the Los Angeles Times he's bracing for even more extensive damage once his team is allowed in for further inspection. During the pandemic, people have taken up lots of new hobbies and activities. That includes yoga. And some yoga instructors have found ways to create culturally sensitive spaces for students of color in an industry where many feel white Westerners have co-opted the practice. The California Report's Gabriella Frenis has the story. When you picture a yoga studio in California, who are the people in the classes and who is leading these classes? Bring your palms together. And lift your chest. Secularizing yoga made us abandon this concept of lineage. And at the same time, it legitimized white American and European teachers' presence as yoga masters, becoming yoga masters and the spokespeople for yoga. 
That's Dr. Judith Carlisle, an instructor for the Center for Religion and Spirituality at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. She says the whitewashing of yoga has created an elitist culture within the practice. But when the pandemic hit, yoga became much more accessible because studios could use online platforms. Heather Haxo Phillips is the owner of Berkeley-based studio Adeline Yoga. She noticed an increase in attendance for her online classes from people all over the country. There are so many people living in communities that don't have access to high-quality instruction, and we've been able to provide that in a much more comprehensive way. Before, people would drive two or three hours to come and take classes with us, and we're now able to set them up with a practice in their own homes. And with the accessibility of simply logging in to join a yoga session, new students felt they could take on the practice in their own way. It's essential to be comfortable in a yoga class, especially for Black, Indigenous students of color who aren't really seen in these spaces. One way Adeline Yoga has reinforced engagement with students of color is by offering scholarships to BIPOC students like Renee Badruzamon. I felt welcomed and I've appreciated the intention to include teachers of color and to create spaces for Black folks or people of color specifically. Dejal Patel is a South Asian American Michigan-based yoga instructor and founder of Dejal Yoga. Half of her Dejal Yoga instructors are based in California, which has garnered a big following on the West Coast. We had experiences with the culture of whiteness, essentially, in yoga, showing up and dominating the space. And also, not just dominating the space, but falling into the typical class and race hierarchy tropes of making power dynamics and racializing our identities in a way that felt really exclusionary and very harmful. This experience motivated Patel to bring the practice back to its cultural roots by recentering South Asian instructors. And with the flexibility of teaching online, she's even had the opportunity to invite a teacher from India to lead a South Asian LGBTQIA practice. These are things I never really dreamed of. And that I can say that because of the devastation of the pandemic, this little seed was able to flourish and grow into what it is now. And because of the increased accessibility virtual classes have created, Patel now plans to continue teaching exclusively online. Back at Loyola Marymount, Dr. Judith Carlisle is thinking about the way people can use this moment of interest in virtual classes to continue breaking down barriers that have historically colonized yoga. When we respond more to particular searches, then that just raises them up within the general algorithm itself. You can almost think of this as a, almost as a type of digital activism, because by pursuing these things, you make them more available to other people, just like any other market economy. We have to remember that yoga is a product that is commoditized and commercialized within a market economy. It's clear that as a result of the pandemic, yoga will continue to exist in a hybrid space, both online and offline. But regardless of where a class is being held, it's still possible to cultivate a comfortable atmosphere for all identities. For the California Report, I'm Gabriela Frenes. This week, our sister show, The California Report magazine, looks at how the state is developing solutions to an increasingly deadly crisis, drug overdoses. Here's a preview from KQED's Leslie McClurg. 
In California alone, an estimated 10,000 people died of a drug overdose last year. The Bay Area is one of the state's hotspots. Hi, I'm Dr. Sun. What happened today? I thought we were getting something else and we got a little bit of fentanyl. Oh. Oh. Have you ever had Narcan before? One time. What were you trying to do? Smoke crack. Okay. Ah, okay. Dr. Joanne Sun is an ER doctor at St. Francis Memorial Hospital in San Francisco. Her staff are participating in a statewide program called California Bridge. I see us as a bridge. I definitely see us as a stabilizer. That's first and foremost, and that's every emergency department. We make sure that you're stable. But then I also think of us as a bridge towards social services. It's hard to believe, but offering addiction services in a hospital is actually rare and quite new. California Bridge has a two-pronged approach that starts in the emergency department. First, docs are trained to dispense medication to treat opioid use. It definitely takes away any withdrawal symptoms you feel, which is the main motivator of trying to get a hit again. Once a patient is stable, they're assigned a substance use navigator, kind of like a care coordinator, to make sure there's a strong handoff to long-term treatment once they leave the ER. That extra kind of hand-holding that these patients need to really start that journey of recovery. That's Christian Holosian. He's a substance use navigator at Highland Hospital in Oakland. He's one of 144 navigators across the state from Redding to San Diego who are trying to empower people who do drugs to turn their lives around. And you can hear more on this week's The California Report magazine. Listen to it on some public radio stations in the state or download its podcast. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of healthcare with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for Friday, October 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin, Chris Hoff, and Brendan Willard, with assistance from Seal Muller and Jim Bennett. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editors, Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editors, Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. There's a big game tonight between the Giants and the Dodgers. I won't tell you who I'm cheering for as I sit here wearing a blue hat in Los Angeles. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown March 27th through the 31st with two electrifying programs and five works springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. 
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with Instant Pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. I'm Jason Flom, and you're Maggie Freeling. Hey, Jason. Every day we learn about another person who shouldn't be in prison. 58 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So glad you're home. If you want to be part of this work, listen to Wrongful Conviction. The podcast where we hand the mic to innocent people to hear their stories. How do you send someone innocent to prison? Listen to new episodes of Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling and Jason Flom on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.